the point that I, I was just trying to share was that um, generally the the knowledge of the Bible is lacking in society today. Um, and, and that doesn't have to be apologetic. That's just the case that uh, r- regardless of whether you've grown up in the church or not, um, people just don't know the Bible anymore. And the reason I want to share that is because um, that hasn't always been the case. We've been doing a series on the history of the ch- of the Christian church. And several months ago, we talked about how when Christianity first began to spread, when Jesus first um, shared this idea um, about God's love and about God's love being greater than um, greater than the sacrifices that he had to make, that ultimately the testimony and the story that Jesus shared with his disciples was so compelling that people were willing to even die for it. Um, and we talked about how in that time, the Christians who lived during the Roman Empire were being relentlessly persecuted by the Roman emperors because the Roman Empire see, saw Christianity as a threat. Um, they didn't like the fact that Christianity was um, advocating for equality uh, between men and women, equality between slaves and free. And they basically came to the conclusion that in order to promote the classical Roman culture, um, they, of hierarchy as well as loyalty to the Roman Empire, the emperor, they needed to eliminate Christianity. So for about 300 years, um, the emperor Nero as well as Diocletian uh, and many others persecuted the Christians um, in various ways. And, you know, you might have heard about the gladiator fights and, you know, the Christians being thrown to lions, etc., but something happened um, in the 4th century that changed how Christianity was viewed as well as how Christianity then progressed. And um, I want to share a little bit about what happened in the 4th century. But we'll come back to this idea of whether or not we know the Bible. And by the way, Michael um, Jr., he's a, he's a comedian who, he claims, um, tries to keep his jokes clean when he's in the clubs and funny when he's in the church and if you ever um, just want to sit back and, and watch something, um, you can check him on, check him out on YouTube. But the guy that changed kind of the flavor and course of Christianity um, and really influenced the theology and the culture, not just of Christianity, but also of the attitude towards Christianity, was a guy named Constantine. So this is Constantine. Constantine was the illegitimate son of the Roman military leader Constantius, and um, his mother was a freed Christian slave named Helena. And so obviously he had some influence from his mother, who was a Christian. His father became Caesar in Western Rome, and after his death, Constantine became next in line to rule. But he had to battle it out with a few other uh, people who were contending for the th- for the throne. And on October 27, 312 AD, um, he was about to have a battle on this bridge. And before um, his battle, the night before, he had a vision. And this is a Roman historian Eusebius who records this story. And records that Constantine saw vision of this son... And behind the sun that there was this um, vision of the cross and that he basically had a dream where Jesus was telling him that in this sign you shall conquer. And so it's this um, little phrase in Greek in Teutonica that he saw in the vision. And the next day the story goes that Constantine went out to um, battle against Maxentius 
And miraculously, even though Const- uh, Constantine was outnumbered, he actually won the battle. And so at the age of 24, Constantine became the emperor of the western half of the Roman Empire. Now, after this point, Constantine's attitude towards Christianity changed. And he basically made a uh, declaration on the following year in 313 AD. He decreed the Edict of Milan, which ordered toleration for Christians as well as restitution of properties taken from Christians during the previous persecutions. Now, this was huge because up until this point, um, not only did Christians have to hide and meet in secret in order to uh, talk about Jesus, to share his stories. But because Christianity had been banned, if you were found to be a Christian, your neighbors could report you, take all your property, and then off you go to meet the lions, right? And so the fact that uh, Constantine issued this decree meant not only toleration of Christians, but actually the fact he he made uh, as part of the decree the restitution of stolen lands and goods. And so this was a huge plus for the Christians. In addition to um, giving them the, the right to worship God, he also funded the building of churches, sponsored bishops to lead them, and unify the Christian beliefs by gathering a council that put together the canon of the Bible. And in a few weeks, um, I'll be sharing about that. How do we have the Bible that we have today? Um, what process went into that? And how can we trust it? But during this time, we have to also look back in history. And a lot of scholars today question, was Constantine genuine in his conversion to Christianity? Um, and some of the reasons for this doubt is that Constantine delayed his baptism until right before his death. Um, And in addition to that, he also kept the title of Pontifex Maximus, which uh, was a title for the chief priest of the pagan state religion, which Roman emperors often took upon themselves. But in addition to that, he he never renounced the former pagan worldview that he had, which was the pagan worldview of the previous emperors before him and of the Roman um, citizens in general. And he liked having his feet in both this new Christian religion that he had um, adopted as well as the pagan religion that he had been a part of and that his culture was a part of. And so he would often uh, merge the two together. For example, December 25 was the pagan festival of the birthday of the sun god. And the Romans would celebrate this day by coming together um, on December 25, and they would light torches, and they would do this light celebration to honor the sun god. Um, This was instituted and inaugurated by the Roman emperor Aurelian in about 270 AD. And Constantine and his religious political advisors thought, you know what, Um, some of the Christians are also participating in the festival. Why don't we make that day the birthday of Jesus Christ. Um, It wasn't, but they said, well, why don't we make it that, and then we can all celebrate together. Um, And as you know, we still celebrate Christmas as the birthday of Jesus. He also did that with Easter and a few other kind of pagan festival dates, um, and he combined them with the Christian kind of, um, he found Christian equivalents, and they were able to merge the two together. He also set apart the Day of the Sun God, uh, Sunday, as a day of rest and worship for Christians. And he replaced the worship of pagan gods and goddesses that they would have throughout the, um, throughout the empire with the worship of statues of Mary and the apostles. Um, and so you can see how a lot of what Constantine was used to from his culture and from the pagan worldview, he decided 
um, to merge that with the Christian worldview, and he saw parallels where he could draw them, and not just him alone, but his um, advisors, and together they were able to create this new state religion. And this was a big deal because up until this point, the disciples who are spreading the new, uh, the stories of Jesus, spreading the ideas of Jesus, were doing them in groups and, and they were, you know, going from place to place as missionaries and they were sharing, but never before had they all come together and had they, um, come up with a unified system of beliefs and never before had that been sponsored by the state. So here's Emperor Constantine, who actually sponsors the first ever council for all the main kind of bishops or leaders of the Christian movement to come together in one place and kind of battle out the differences in theology and come up with one code that they then would make everyone profess to believe. Um, Roy actually talked about this a few weeks ago. This was called the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and basically, when there was a bit of controversy between you know, two groups over uh, a point of doctrine and theology, Emperor Constantine stepped in and he said, I, um, I think it should be like this. And after he made the decision, he exiled the guy who disagreed with him. And because this is now a state religion, um, when someone disagreed with him theologically, he could exile them from the entire empire. And that's what happened to Arius, um, who disagreed with uh, the other theologians, the main theologians of that time. And so this is what some historians have said about the influence of Constantine. Let me read this to you. What is originally a movement oppressed by Caesar becomes an imperial religion. Now Jesus had been transformed into the Lord Christ of heaven and Constantine, the emperor, ruled in his name. And another one, this is a different historian. He says, looking back at the steps by which Christianity, a despised sect with small numbers, became the official religion of the mighty Roman Empire, one might well believe, with the advantage of the perspective of time, that this victorious march was detrimental to the church. It is true that Christianity had raised the moral tone of society, so that, for example, the dignity of women was given more recognition in society. Gladiator uh, shows were eliminated. Slaves were given milder treatment. Roman legislation became more just, and the spread of missionary work was speeded up. But the church also found that, while there were advantages to close association with the state, there were also marked disadvantages. The government, in return for position, protection, and aid, demanded the right to interfere in spiritual and theological matters. Unfortunately, the church, where it gained the power, too often became an arrogant persecutor of paganism, as the pagan religious authorities had ever been of the Christians. It would appear on balance that the rapprochement between church and state brought more drawbacks than blessings to the Christian church. And it's interesting when you read the different historians on their take on Constantine and the effect that Constantine had. And very soon after, um, by the end of the 4th century, um, his children, as well as others who ruled after him, soon turned this Christian movement that began with this small group of people who were willing to die for their faith into a state religion that was then forced. Every single person in the Roman Empire had to agree with the Nicene Creed of 325 AD. And if they didn't, then they would be persecuted. That's a very short amount of time in which the reception and the attitudes towards Christianity changed almost 180 degrees. And that impacted then 
the people who joined the movement, a lot of them now by force, a lot of them now not because they believe in the story, not because they understand the story, but because this is what the emperor has told them that they must believe. For the next 1,200 years, it got worse before it got better, and, and the weeks to come will kind of continue to trace in history what, ha what happened. But convenience resulted in compromise, tolerance resulted in confusion, and ignorance resulted in superstition. Before, the, the early Christians used to store the little you know, fragments and pieces of the scrolls of the stories of Jesus. Maybe it was just a letter from um, the disciple John, or maybe it was the story from the gospel writer Mark, and they would copy these stories carefully by hand, you know, hide them in, in their sleeves, and risk their lives to take them to the next city, the next town, in order to just be able to read this story to a group of people gathered there. But very quickly, because they weren't being persecuted anymore, because they could freely meet, um, in fact, Constantine built these huge um, churches now that could house the hundreds and thousands of people that he has now forced into worshiping. And um, these huge temples that were actually copies of the, um, the pagan temples uh, were, were big and majestic, and they could come in there and they could worship, which is fantastic. But on the other hand, they no longer cherished the words, the stories, the letters, the advice, the fragments and pieces that they used to value greatly. And over time, not only did they take them for granted, but they didn't even have copies of them anymore. Um, and over time, we'll see that down the road, it got to the point where no one even knew what, what the Bible said anymore. Um, and it would take 1,200 some years before that would be restored back to the people. When we think about history, when we think about Emperor Constantine and the effects of that major change in the 4th century, the moral that we take away could, could become, oh, we really need to separate church and state. Let's, let's make sure that, you know, uh, whoever is in politics does not have anything to do with religion. Or we might think, let's make sure that whoever is in religious leadership has nothing to do with politics. And I'm not sure if that's really the right takeaway message. Because um, I don't think the point is that having someone um, who married the two, um, that therefore we should keep our you know, work and our church and our home life as separate as possible. I think really it's about becoming honest with ourselves, becoming genuine about the, the search and the journey of looking for God in our, in our experience with God, with church, and with Christians, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is my experience, is my understanding a Constantinian one? I kind of made up that word. But is it a compromise of convenience and culture, an inheritance of tradition and habit? Or is it a Christ-centered one in which there's conviction about the truth of a person that I'm willing to live and die for? How much of what we believe is based on what we know for ourselves or based on what we've been told to know by someone else. When Jesus taught, he was very unpopular with the leaders of his time because Jesus was challenging their traditions. He was challenging their presuppositions. When the religious leaders taught the people, they taught based on their interpretation of what God wanted of Israel, what God expected of Israel, and what they expected of him. 
So when Jesus came around and he challenged that and he asked piercing questions and he tried to get them to really go back to what God said rather than what they thought, it was so difficult for them. They, they really struggled and wrestled with it. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus had to choose individuals who are open-minded, individuals who are willing to discover for themselves who Jesus was and who God was ultimately. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus is um, speaking with these religious leaders. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus challenged everyone who was listening to him, go back to actually what God is saying. Forget about the layers of people telling you what you should believe or telling you what you should know. Go back and research for yourself. Go back and discover for yourself. Go back to that first point of reference. Do we know the difference between the commandments, co- commands of God and the commands of men? I want to challenge you not to settle for a second-hand religion, a second-hand picture of Jesus, whether you inherited that from your family or from your culture, um, whoever it may be, but to actually taste and see for yourself what is that true, good, and wonderful revelation of God as recorded in the Bible and as revealed in history and in nature. Discover for yourself the stories of Jesus as they were recorded and ask rigorous questions. When you open the Bible for yourself and read them, Pretend you have never seen it before and ask questions like, why did he do this? Or why did he say that? Why did she respond in this way? And as you ask those rigorous questions, let continue to study and, and read and allow the Bible and God to reveal to you what it is that the text is actually saying. We're so quick to turn to the commentaries or to turn to the other books or you know turn to someone else to, to find the answers to those questions. But what would happen if we actually just dug in and took the time? You know, relationships take time. Relationships take a lot of work. And if I were to try to work on my marriage with Roy by talking to all of you about him, it wouldn't really help our marriage get better. Ultimately, you have to go right to the person that you're trying to build this relationship with. And that takes being vulnerable. That takes uh, being willing to show yourself. That means being willing to communicate, being willing to listen, being willing to dialogue. And if there are points of difference or misunderstanding or confusion, being willing to say, I'm committed to this relationship. And even though I don't understand you, even though you do things that annoy me, even though I do things that annoy you, we're going to work through this. And I, and I want to understand you. I want to hear you out. And it's difficult for us to do that with God because it's true he's invisible and we don't always hear or or feel immediate responses back. But if we were to be patient and if we were to actually put in the time, to put in the work, to put put in the effort, 
to be willing to get into that relationship and to discover God for himself, I wonder what we would find. C.S. Lewis was an atheist by age 15. But after speaking with a few um, Christians of his day, like Tolkien and reading um, books by Chesterton, and he, he was just hounded by this idea that he needed to know God for himself. And he writes about how when he finally converted to being a Christian, he talks about being the most reluctant convert ever. That he kind of just said, ah, fine, I acknowledge you, God, I can't fight it anymore. But he only got to that point because he was willing to discover for himself. And he went on to write books like Mere Christianity and Chronicles of Narnia and other books that um, we, he, we know today. Josh McDowell was an agnostic at uni when he decided to prepare a paper arguing against the ev- historical evidence for the Christian faith. And as he researched and as he dug into the, the, the evidence, he found that there was actually more evidence for Christianity than against. So by the time he actually wrote the paper, he became a Christian himself. He went on to write over 115 books, one of which um, is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is one of the top 15 influential um, Christian books of this time. Lee Strobel was a Yale Law graduate um, who was an avowed atheist, and he became a journalist. um, And after 14 years of journalism, his wife became a Christian, and he wanted to prove her wrong. And so he actually also went down a path of research, trying to discover for himself evidence against the historical um, case of Jesus. And he also, through that discovery and, and research, came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ not only existed, but was everything he claimed to be. And he records um, his journey in the book, Case for Christ, that I've shared with you before. Imagine if all these individuals just heard about God from their culture, right? Whether it's comedians that you watch, right? Whether it's the TV shows, whether it's the people you talk to, everyone has an opinion about religion in some way, format. Um, It might be offensive, it might be interesting, it might be something you agree with, disagree. Regardless, everybody has something to share. Is our view of God shaped by that? Or is our view of God shaped by our personal experience of actually searching for ourselves? So that no matter what is shared around us, no matter what the compromise or no matter what the pressure we are able to dig deeper into the roots of knowing that we have a testimony of a God. We have a story of a God. We have an experience of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. Do we know that for ourselves? Have we experienced that for ourselves? Or are we happy to just kind of drift along with whatever um, the culture around us says for us to believe about him? I have a challenge for us today, and that challenge is to be willing to claim a promise that if we want the real deal, that we have to be willing to put in the hard yards. There's a promise in Jeremiah. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. It will bring you back from captivity. 
I'm not sure exactly where you are in your journey today, um, whether you have already gone through that search for yourself um, or maybe you haven't begun and you're not really sure where to start. We're happy to point you in kind of where to start and h- how, to, how to begin. But wherever you are in that journey and whatever um, experience and you've been given or handed down or heard and whatever culture you are from, I want to challenge and invite you today to search for yourself. And at the end of that journey, if the conclusion you come to is different from where you are today, well, at least you've gone through that journey and otherwise you would just be going through the empty motions of doing the same thing just because you've been doing it or because someone's told you to do it. But hopefully, and I believe, that at the end of that journey, you will find meaning and purpose and understanding that will far exceed Um, the relationship that you have with God now or the lack thereof, and that at the end of that journey, you'll be able to have that testimony that just like the early Christians, you'll be willing to to live for and to die for, of having that passion and that purpose in life that will give you that meaning um, and will give you that direction that you are so longing for in life. And I just want to invite you, if you know, you want to talk to either Roy or myself afterwards to kind of um, get pointers on where to start. Um, or just simply, if you want to go later on today and just go back and have a look at what God says. I just want to invite you to, to make that decision to pursue and seek and discover for yourself the God that is in here and not just in the culture around us. And as we go into our discussion and develop um, this idea a bit further, um, it's my prayer that you'll be able to taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good.